You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. When I was in our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the, all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Now, uh, I was struck this week when I went to daily Mass at uh, a number of the Gospel readings. The theme of the Gospel readings this week uh, had a lot to do with the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the Church and the interplay between Jew and Gentile in Jesus' ministry because many of the readings, if not all of them, came from the uh, near the end of the Gospel according to Matthew, around Matthew 20 to 23. And that is a recurrent theme. So I thought it would be fun today to uh, to read some of those parables and some other parables and some other comments by Jesus that really underline this the centrality of the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the unfolding of salvation. And as time permits today, I may go on to St. Paul's further explication of the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the Church. Uh, but I think these readings will be very telling uh, because, of course, I mean, this is, this is Christianity 101, but we know that Jesus was Jewish. We know that he uh, came as a Jew to the Jews as the long-awaited promised Messiah of Judaism, that his ministry and his evangelization during his lifetime was almost exclusively to Jews, but that to a large extent the Jewish population rejected him and did not follow him, and the uh, wave of early entrance into the church came preponderantly from the Gentiles, from the non-Jews. And this dynamic of Jesus having come to the Jews aching for the Jewish people to follow him since he was the Messiah that was what Judaism was all about and that the Jews had been praying for for 2,000 years and so forth, that although he came first and one could say foremost to the Jewish people, they did not follow him, but it was the Gentiles who received him. And there are many of these parables which reflect this uh dynamic of first coming to the Jews, being rejected by the Jews, and that it's the Gentiles who actually enter the church first, enter the stream of post-Messianic salvation first. So let me begin, um, and, um, and let me also say, by the way, before I begin reading the parables themselves, that very often Jesus goes into these parables. If you read, If you read the gospel beginning from you know, a few sentences before the parable itself, you'll see that very often what's happening is that the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders are giving Jesus a hard time, are trying to trap him, are accusing him of things, and then he'll go into one of these parables, which graphically illustrates the dynamic that I just described, that Jesus, although he came to the Jews, it was the Jews and the Jewish leaders who rejected him and the Gentiles who accepted him. So very often these parables or perhaps always these parables, are in response to the Jewish leaders giving Jesus a hard time. So I will uh, start with uh, the gospel readings which were in and around the readings of this week at Mass. So I'll start with with uh, Matthew 19. And it shows that background of the Pharisees giving Jewish, Jesus a hard time. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So you see that Jesus is is um, ministering to the Jewish people, and immediately subsequent to that, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, are coming up to him and trying to entrap him. And then after Jesus uh, responds to their immediate kind of attempt to entrap him with a question, uh, Jesus goes on to the parable 
which begins in uh, chapter 20 of Matthew, which we heard, I believe, on Thursday of this week at Mass. So let me just read that. For the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the householder, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Close of the parable. Now, as is true in most of the things Jesus said, they have such a depth of truth and one could say revelation to them that they are true in many ways and in many contexts simultaneously and any one interpretation doesn't exhaust the legitimate meaning of the parable. However, it's been clear from the church fathers on that one of the meanings of this parable, and in fact, many of the um, uh, church fathers and, and scholars have thought the primary meaning of this parable is the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the church. The uh, The laborers who began laboring in the vineyard at the beginning of the day are the are the Jews, are the people that Jesus, Jesus being here the the householder who's calling in in laborers for the vineyard, who Jesus called first, and they were laboring for him, so to speak. They were following the Jewish law. They were praying for the coming of the Messiah, so forth, from the beginning, and then they see. These Johnny-come-latelys, the Gentiles, that is, the laborers who came in the middle of the day and late in the day and at the very end of the day, and they are being received just as fully as the Jews and are being rewarded and giving just as full a blessing and a, and a reward as the Jews and the Jews who were there first and who were faithful for 2,000 years before the Gentiles came in, were or have the potential to be resentful and say, shouldn't we be favored over these Johnny-come-latelys? And the answer of the householder in this parable and the answer of Jesus to us, whether Jew or Gentile, is not at all, I am the giver of the gifts. Am I not free to give what is mine however generously as I want, I'm not cheating anybody by not giving them more. Uh, I'm certainly free to give others just as much as I give to you by my own lights, and you have no right to question it or complain. And this can be seen, and I think must be seen, at least in part, as a rebuke to Jews, uh, and in this case Jews in the church, who feel that they should be in a favored position over the Gentile because they were in the covenant with God earlier and they worked for God for longer than the Gentile. But nothing could be further from the truth. God is sovereign in his generosity to give his gifts as he wishes, and there is no reason that um, having been given the extra blessing 
of having entered in earlier should result in any entitlement to receiving anything more. So that is the first of the parables um, that I wanted to discuss. And then, uh, this is a beautiful section, by the way, this Matthew 20 to 23, because it's kind of non-stop, um, almost non-stop commentary on the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the church. So I will uh, go on and um, and read the next one. Um, and then uh, in this section in Matthew, we are now in uh, Holy Week, and Jesus is pre- uh, teaching in the temple. And uh, I'm going to skip now to Matthew 21, verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So again, we see this theme of the Jewish leaders challenging Jesus. And then Jesus gives a withering response in the form of a parable. He says, now beginning in verse 28, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go so, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the harlots believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward repent and believe him. So this uh, this small parable about the two sons, the faithful son, well, I'll just stop there for the moment and say the two sons, uh, has several applications again. One of them, of course, being the comparison between the Jewish leaders and the uh, sinners among the Jews, so to speak, the tax collectors and the harlots. But another is uh, another application of this is, again, between the Jews and the Gentiles, because one could see that son to whom uh, Jesus said, son, go and work in the vineyard today, and he answered, I will not, as the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles, when in the beginning, so to speak, did not follow God and fell away from God. And they can be seen as the son who said, um, I will not. But what happened afterward, later, he repented and went. So you can see this as the Gentiles who didn't originally follow God, but then after Jesus came, repented and followed him. And one can see the second son, the one who said, I go so, but did not go, as the Jews who asserted their willingness to follow God, but in fact, were uh, unfaithful to the call and were unfaithful to God. So again, in, in this parable, we can see this interplay very beautifully between Jew and Gentile in the church. Then we have, uh, immediately following that, yet another, which is uh, uh, more graphic and in some sense more uh, chilling. So I will immediately, I will continue with the immediately following verse, verse 33. This is Jesus speaking again. Here another parable. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will surely respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. But when they tried to arrest him, they feared the multitudes, because they held him to be a prophet. So we see that it's explicit in in the gospel itself that these parables are about the interplay between the Jews and the Gentiles and the interplay between the self-righteous, self-proclaimed holy Jews and the sinners of Israel, um, because when the Pharisees heard these parables, they knew Jesus was talking to them. Let me go back through the parable of the householder with the vineyard, uh, because virtually every every sentence in there bespeaks the interplay between um, Jew and Gentile in the church. There was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. So this householder planted a vineyard and... Um, equipped it marvelously. He not only planted the vineyard, he put in a wine press so that the, the tenants could make wine. He put in a tower so the tenants could guard the vineyard. He put a hedge around it. In other words, he gave them everything they could wish for in a well-tended, protected vineyard. He was, went sort of over and above in his generosity. And then he went to another country. He he absented himself. He veiled himself for a while. But then when it came time, the time for harvesting, the time for drawing some fruit from the vineyard came near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. These servants would have been the prophets. They would have been the prophets in the Old Testament who Jesus sent to call his people to him, to to reap the fruits, so to speak, of the covenant with God. But what did the tenants do when these prophets came to them or when these servants of the, of the vineyard owner came to them? The tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. In other words, the behavior that unfortunately the Jews in the Old Testament often exercised on the prophets who were sent to them. They literally uh, beat them, killed them, and stoned them at times. Well, you, you, one can only need only think of Jeremiah and so forth. So again, the vineyard owner sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. So again and again in the Old Testament, the prophets that Jesus sent to recall his people to him uh, were mistreated and rejected and beaten and stoned and killed at times. Finally, the vineyard owner sent his son to them, saying, they will surely respect my son. It couldn't be more obvious, of course, that uh, the vineyard owner is God and his son is Jesus. And he sent his son to recall his people to him. In other words, to uh, wake up the Jews and get the Jews to turn back to God fully, saying they will surely respect my son. In other words, the Jews might have rejected and killed the prophets, but they certainly won't reject and kill the son of God himself the Messiah, that was the whole point of Judaism, was the central promise of Judaism. But when the tenants saw the son, that is, saw Jesus, that is, when the Jewish people saw Jesus, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Now, this verse is almost uh, too true in respect to the chief priests at the time that Jesus came, because uh, Caiaphas, very literally, said, let's kill Jesus and let have his inheritance. In other words, uh, Caiaphas seems to have realized that if the Jewish people followed Jesus, the chief priests would lose their prerogatives. They would lose their exalted state as spiritual leaders of the Jewish people. So Caiaphas, in essence, said, let us kill the son, let us kill Jesus um, and have his inheritance. In other words, uh, keep ourselves, so to speak, on the throne of the temple instead of letting the rightful Son of God take the throne of the temple. 
And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him, which, of course, literally fulfilled the Jewish leaders essentially took Jesus, cast him out of the vineyard. One can think of this as casting him out of Jerusalem, the way of the cross, and killed him. So they took the son, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? In other words, how do you think God will respond to this uh, betrayal, so to speak, of betrayal of not only the gift that God gave the Jewish people, but the giver of that gift, Jesus, when he sent him to the Jewish people? And the audience is saying he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Now, we know that the Jewish people were not, uh, certainly were not wholesale condemned to a miserable death, but if you take um, the, the state of Israel, and if you take in particular Jerusalem as emblematic of the Jewish people, that was, uh, that was true. God did seem to visit his wrath on Jerusalem when around 70 A.D., the Romans very, very viciously conquered Jerusalem, slaughtered all the inhabitants, uh, and put Jerusalem to the torch, burned every building in Jerusalem, tore down every building that was left standing in Jerusalem, slaughtered every Jew in Jerusalem, uh, to the point where the streets were literally running with blood. And uh, so that could be seen as a fulfillment of that um, response, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And then that next line, and let out the vineyard to other tenants, will give him the fruits in their seasons, is clearly a picture of then giving the promise of Judaism to the Gentiles, to the, uh, to other tenants, to other people to inherit that promise, who will then give God the fruits in their seasons. In other words, who will then honor God and worship God properly and not try to um, not try to uh, basically steal steal the grace of God for themselves steal the gifts of God for themselves but rather will give God back the fruits in their seasons will give God proper glory and honor and praise for his gifts um, I hope that made sense it certainly makes sense to me Anyway, continuing with the chapter, then Jesus goes on to say the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. So uh, Jesus seems to be very clearly saying, because you as a nation, the Jewish people, have rejected me, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing fruits of it, in other words, given to the Gentiles who will properly uh, honor God in the church, serve God in the church. Um, so I guess, uh, actually, I've talked for almost the first half of the show. We've come to about the halfway point. So I will take a short break, and when we come back, it will continue with these uh, parables from uh, the words, mostly from the words of Jesus, entirely from the words of Jesus, that describe the interplay between Jew and Gentile in the church. And I hope I will get to end on a somewhat happier note about the interplay of Jew and Gentile. I might skip to a few words of St. Paul that kind of sheds a more positive light on this interplay. But for now, it's time for a break. You've been listening to Roy Showman. On Radio Maria, the show is Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. So with that, please come back, or please stay with us, and I'll be back in a few minutes after the short break. You shall cross the barren desert but you shall not die first. You shall wander far in safety, though you do not know the way. You shall speak your words in foreign lands and understand. You shall see. 
listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Showman. Hi, welcome back to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. We've been spending today talking about parables of Jesus that address the issue of Jew and Gentile in the church and this interesting dynamic where the uh, promise of um, intimacy with God, I don't know exactly the way to put it, the promise of salvation and of knowing God came first to the Jews, but then seems to have shifted to the Gentiles in the face of the Jewish rejection of Jesus. And we're discussing some of the parables of Jesus that seem to be uh, explicitly addressing this exact uh, dynamic. Um, and I've been uh, talking about these parables in, in part because many of them occurred in uh, this week's gospel readings uh, at Catholic Mass. So I thought it would be appropriate and timely. So uh, at the time of the break, we just got to the end of Matthew 21. So I will start with Matthew 22 at the beginning of the chapter. And it is, again, another parable, another somewhat frightening parable, speaking as a Jew, um, about the interplay between Jew and Gentile in salvation history, and in particular about the Jews' rejection of Jesus and therefore the blessing which had originally been promised to the Jews being uh, transferred, at least in part, to the Gentiles. So starting at uh, verse, excuse me, chapter 22, verse 1 of the Gospel according to Matthew. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, Behold, I have made ready my dinner, my oxen, and my fattened calves are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the marriage feast. But they made light of it and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the thoroughfares and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find." And those servants went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. Their men will weep and gnash their teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and took counsel how to entangle him in his talk. In other words, I just read that subsequent verse after the parable to show that even to the listeners, the Pharisees, it was evident to them that Jesus was talking about the essentially the history of Judaism, the history of the revelation of Judaism up until that point and the Jews' response to Jesus. 
So let me go back to the beginning and just go through that parable verse by verse and, and talk about it. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son. Obviously, the king is God, uh, God the Father, and the marriage feast for his son, his son is Jesus, and the marriage feast for his son, um, over and over again in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are referred to as as a bride, as a, a bride of God, and in the New Testament, of course, the church is the bride of Christ. So the marriage feast is the essentially the, the wedding between humanity and God represented by salvation, represented by the the uh, almost spousal union between God and man, which is promised to us through Jesus. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast. Again, these servants are the prophets, and they were sent by God to call originally the Jewish people to the marriage feast, to the union with God, um, actually through Jesus, through the Messiah, the, the nuptial union with God. It's re- represented already in the Old Testament. One only has to think of the Song of Solomon, right? The Song of Songs to see that this bridal relationship between humanity and God um, is already in Judaism and already uh, permeates the Old Testament. So the king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast, but they would not come. So uh, as God sent the prophets in the Old Testament to recall the Jewish people to fidelity and love of God, but they kept turning away from the message of the prophets. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, behold, I have made ready my dinner, my oxen and my fattened calves, and everything is ready. Come to the marriage feast. So again and again in the Old Testament, God sent the prophets to call the Jewish people to union with Jesus. Uh, but they made light of it and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. So basically, on one part, many of the Jewish people were just too involved, so to speak, in their own lives to wish to turn their hearts and their minds and their lives to God. And then, more frighteningly, Jesus goes on to say, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Again, unfortunately fulfilled, seen in the Old Testament, time after time, the Jewish people to whom the prophets were sent turned on the prophets, seized them, treated them shamefully, and at times even killed them. Then the king was angry, that is, God became angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Again, uh, uh, in some sense, literally fulfilled, although... There's a little bit of a, a time jog here uh, because, in fact, in 70 A.D., Jerusalem, the city of the Jews par excellence, was burned to the ground by the Roman troops uh, around, around 68 to 70 A.D. So one can easily see that sentence that the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city as being fulfilled in the, um, frankly, the slaughter of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the burning of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., in some sense, um, oh gosh, I don't like to use the word punishment, but for the sake of brevity, I'll use the word punishment without wanting to be hung on the precise theological meaning of that word, but in some sense, Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 A.D. was often seen certainly by the early church, as a punishment on the Jews for their rejection of Jesus. And then back to uh, chapter 22. Then the king said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the thoroughfares and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find. This is a very transparent parable, right? Because the wedding is ready, the Messiah has come, it's time for the long awaited, long-promised union with God, which was made possible by the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, to be fulfilled, but those invited were not worthy. In other words, the Jews to whom Jesus came 
were not worthy in that they, by and large, did not turn to him and accept him. Go, therefore, to the thoroughfares. In other words, go to the street corners. Go out into the hoi polloi. Go to the masses and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find. In other words, the, the, the doors of the church are being thrown open to the entire Gentile world, to the hoi polloi, to everybody, regardless of their nation, their peoplehood, their stature, where they are, who they are. It is um, what had been, to some extent, a somewhat exclusive invitation became a totally general invitation to absolutely everybody without distinction. Uh, which the next uh, verse makes explicit. And those servants went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. As did the apostles, as did the early disciples, the early Christians went out into the streets, went out into the broadest of the broadest of the world, and gathered all who they found, both bad and good, without distinction, you know, as we are called to, by the way, uh, evangelize, bring absolutely everybody, every human being on earth, into the church, invite them to the wedding feast, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who no, had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness there men will weep and gnash their teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. There have been over the centuries uh, various interpretations of what this wedding garment is, but leaving aside the precise mapping of this wedding garment onto something super specific, clearly everybody is called into the church, everybody is called into the wedding feast, everybody is called into this incredibly intimate nuptial relationship with God, but it is not without conditions. It's not without requirements. God gives everybody everything they need to meet those requirements. In other words, as the king gave everybody who was invited a wedding garment. In other words, you didn't have to provide yourself with a wedding garment. You didn't have to have one beforehand. You didn't have to be rich enough to to buy one. The king was happy to give you a wedding garment, but you had to put it on. You have to enter the church um, and enter into salvation, enter into the promise of Jesus under the conditions which God places, which is at least gradually over time, repentance for sins. First of all, baptism, entering into the church, uh, repentance and turning away from sins and turning more and more to God. You can certainly see this as the wedding garment. It's nothing... It's nothing we have to provide for ourselves, but we have to cooperate with the grace of God. I think in the in the end, that's how the wedding garment should be seen, as the wedding garment uh, that's given by God being the grace of God. The grace is necessary for salvation, but we have to put them on. We have to cooperate with them. We have to make use of the sacraments. We have to, um, you know, uh, baptism is required at least. Ideally, baptism is required as a matter, as the kind of ideal condition for entry into the church and the sacrament of confession and turning away from sin and um, entering more and more into God's grace, clothing ourselves more and more with God's grace. And um, so all are invited. The invitation is for everyone. The wedding garment is provided for everyone. The only thing that's left up to us the requirement that's left for us to fulfill is for us to put on the wedding garment in order to benefit from this unprecedented, inconceivable, generous gift of God, this invitation to the wedding feast with his son. And of course, if we do not put on the wedding garment, if we do not cooperate with the grace of God, we risk that final um that final uh, condemnation of, that the king said, or king announced, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. And we all know what that's a picture of. That's a picture of the fate bef that befalls those who do not end up eventually in the at the wedding feast in intimacy with God. It's the alternative um, 
that's actually the alternative, unfortunately, of damnation. So again, again, we have here, we have three or four in a row of these beautiful uh, parables of Jesus that basically talk about the this this the dynamic of salvation the way salvation was first presented to the Jews the the way that when Jews reject what's offered to them they end up on the in the on the outs and the gentiles who were originally on the outs take their place and are invited in in place of the the Jews who um who fail to live up to the promise so um and let me see, I think there's another, uh, another one or two here that I will, they're uh, still at the tail end of Matthew, that I will get to. Um, first of all, I will point out that shortly following this, uh, after that last parable which I described, that I spoke through, uh, there, uh, the, the Pharisees come up to Jesus because they know these, these uh, parables were about them. And ask them all, ask him all these questions, trying to trap him, trying to kind of counterattack. Uh, they ask him about, you know, they present the coin and say, what about paying the temple tax? Trying to trap him there. They try to trap him with the story of the um, of the uh, man who died without children, and uh, uh, you know, the the seven brothers. Who, who died without children and in, in the, uh, the widow married them and in heaven whose wife will she be? Again, an attempt to trap Jesus. And again, the attempt to trap him asking what's the greatest commandment in the law. So we see here the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, being stung a little bit by these parables and trying to in turn entrap Jesus. But of course it all fails miserably. And then Jesus goes into his uh, condemnation, using the word loosely, of the Pharisees. He lets them have it with both barrels. And he says, um, this is where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides. Um, uh, you blind men. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 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 I said that four times because Jesus said it four times in this passage. Uh, I'll just give an example. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the, then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, that you, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. So we see here in this final uh, condemnation of Jesus in this, this last half of chapter 23, actually it's all of chapter 23 of Matthew, he is actually making explicit the... the um, tale of all of those parables, the tail end of all of those parables. In other words, he is really underlining it, writing it in red, saying, if you didn't get my point when I gave you all those parables, when I gave you all of those metaphors, all those similes, I will make it perfectly explicit that I was talking about you. You represent those who killed the prophets sent to you. In other words, killed the king's servants, you know, who came to invite you to the wedding feast and so forth. And um, basically, you it's rather unsavory, so I don't want to repeat it too much. But anyway, he says, you know, he 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 blames them for their the mistreatment of the prophets, and says, truly, I say to you, all this will come upon this generation. 
uh, probably referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, which was to come about uh, 35 or 40 years later um, when the Romans totally uh, burned down, slaughtered, and destroyed Jerusalem. Um, and then actually I'll, I'll just read the last the last uh, paragraph in the chapter, because it's a little bit happier in its own way. This is Jesus speaking again. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's, Jesus is kind of wrapping it up here, saying, as he said before, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. So this calls to mind the first part of all of those parables, right, of the king who sent his servants and so forth, and the tenants simply um, stoned or, or killed the servants. But Jesus also expresses the depth of his love for the Jewish people, the depth of his love uh, for the Jewish people here under the figure of Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. In other words, the tender maternal love that Jesus has for his own people and his heartbreaking disappointment at their failure to receive him and at the fate which they're bringing on themselves by failing to receive him. But then Jesus um, leaves with the final promise, so to speak. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is actually a promise of the conversion of the Jews. For um, that's what that's referring to. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, that uh, phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a reference to the conversion of the Jews to precede the second coming. And the first half of that sentence, you will not see me again until you say it, is a reference to the second coming itself. And as Catholics, this is not left to our speculation, but is explicit in the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 674, cites or rather references this verse as evidence that there will be a conversion of the Jews to precede the second coming. Paragraph 674 says, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. And the paragraph goes on to explain that this doctrine is based in part on exactly this verse, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the first half of that, for I tell you, you will not see me again, refers to the second coming. That's when they will see him again. Until you say, in other words, the second coming is waiting for the moment when the Jews say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And finally, I don't have time to really go into it, um, the, the substance of it today, we're in the last minute or two of the show, but um, St. Paul in chapter 11 makes it very clear that the failure of the Jews to follow Jesus, to believe in Jesus, isn't entirely their own fault, but in fact was in itself, some, was, uh, in itself divine providence in order to enable the full number of the Gentiles to come into the church. In other words, in order to open up the church to the entire Gentile world. So if you go back to that uh, parable of the marriage feast of the king's son, the, the, uh, the Jewish people rejected the invitation to the marriage feast, and therefore the servants of the king went out into the byways and highways to invite strangers and just anybody into the wedding feast. But what St. Paul says is that's not entirely a failure of the first invitees, but God arranged it that way. God basically inspired them to turn down the invitation so that um, the all of the outer world, all of those in the byways and highways would be invited in. And the original invitees had to be kept out in order to make room for the others. And then when the others come in, um, the original invitees will come in too. 
And I'll just read the verses, and I won't have time to explain them, but I'll read some of the verses in Romans 11 and make that clear. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear, down to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Unless you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in, and so all Israel will be saved. I don't have time to explain that, but uh, if you read it and if you uh, dwell on it, you'll see that it suggests that this failure of the Jews that Jesus is condemning in his parables is in itself part of divine providence in order to allow the full Gentile world to come into the church, and then when the full number of the Gentiles come in, all Israel will be saved. So I've run out of time for today. You've been listening to Roy Shoman on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. I hope you have enjoyed the show, and I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now.